the name of the message is the body of Christ, then you'll you'll come to understand why it's called that. Um, and maybe it has something to do with my Catholic background and why that, that title came to me. Um, but it's called the body of Christ. Glory to God. Thank you, Father, that uh, the thing that pleases you, the thing that your mind is filled with, your desire is for mercy, that your desire is for your mercy to be manifested in our lives, in our hearts, and in this world. Thank you, Lord, that we could just be caught up into your mercy today, that we could see it clearly, that we can find ourselves being comforted with your love for us, and that, uh, man, we could, our lives could just be a living epistle where our hearts and our eyes and our words and our thoughts are just filled with mercy. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Glory to God. Um, I switched all the I switched the messages up. I wasn't going to talk about this this week or next week. Um, next week we'll talk about a new creation born from God's mercy, and we'll we'll look at how the mercy of God is actually what gave birth to a new creation, and how it's His mercy that He was desiring there, and He wasn't just desiring His mercy for no different kind of a reason, but the reason He was di- desiring His mercy is He wanted to create a new creation. He wanted to actually hold together his death-torn creation or his creation that had been torn apart by death. And he wanted to hold it together and bring forth a new creation that can never be touched by death again. Glory to God. So we'll, we'll get into that next week. Um, it, and this week, we're just going to look at the mercy of God um, because of you know some of the, the tragic events that have happened um, over the course of the last week, and not just the last week, because I know we forget, kind of, because time has moved by, but um, there's a war going on in Ukraine, and there's a whole lot of tragedy happening to those people and those families and children and parents um, over there. There's a whole lot of tragedy going on. So in, in light of all the tragedy um, going on around us, I just want to, to refocus our sight on God's mercy, um, because there's comfort for us in God's mercy. The world, you know, in, in colleges and in high schools and everywhere has created like a bosom, a false bosom. We call it safe spaces, right? Th- those aren't really a safe place. The, the only safe place is really God's mercy. God's mercy is his bosom. His bosom is his mercy. That's a safe place. When you think about the mercy seat in the heavenly throne room and what that mercy seat is there for, what it's there for is that so when you walk in there, you see that what God's desire was, was that he would give his own body to be broken for you. That's what you're supposed to think of when you walk in there and see blood on the mercy seat. You're supposed to think of the God that shed his own blood, that you might be cleansed from death. And so that's the safe place. For all of us within the bosom of the father within the father's mercy right and i think we all know this the people in houston you know most immediately are, are feeling this it's easily it's easy to feel fatherless when you encounter tragedy it really is it's not like how does that happen and god's not like what's wrong with you that you feel that way he's not busy thinking that he's desiring mercy because he knows that it's easy to feel fatherless when you encounter tragedy. He knows how that could happen. And if you look in the the letter of James, the apostle James 
says something really profound that we just gloss right over. I mean, I, th I think sometimes we gloss over so much of, of what's said that we don't, we don't weigh it. We're not, we're not contemplative in our society. We don't walk away thinking of what, what is going on here? What's, what's he getting at? How deep does this go? We tend to walk away thinking, ah, well, yeah, I heard it. Glory to God. I'm off to the next thing, right? We have like a, a, a society of, what is it, ADD, <laughs> right? I'm not sure what I think about that kind of a thing, but I think we have a society right now that, that tends to like flip pages as quickly as possible, right? I, I'm just being honest. There's no shame in this. Like myself, I realized last night, I'm watching this TV show last night that I really like. It's this series I've been watching. And as I'm watching it, I can't even just sit there and watch it. I grab my glasses, I pick up my phone, and I'm on my phone doing things while I'm watching the TV show. And I don't feel like ashamed of myself, but I can also recognize a dynamic, right? Where this is kind of strange, that my attention can't even sit right here for a moment, right? Where I'm off, off, off. And so the, James says some powerful things, but one of the things he says is that pure and undefiled religion is to visit the fatherless and the widows. Pure and undefiled religion is to visit the fatherless and the widows. And pure and undefiled religion, what James is talking about there really, is he's talking about God's ministry to people, right? That's really what he's talking about. True ministry is to shower the brokenhearted with the tender love of God. That's true ministry. The gospel is God himself. The gospel is God's ministry. I mean, the only reason why we can even preach or we can even minister is because God first preached, God first ministered. The only reason why you could even have a ministry, if you want to call it that, is because God first had a ministry. And the gospel is God's ministry. The gospel is God's message. The world is his congregation. The world is his church. And the gospel is God showering the brokenhearted with his tender love. That's what the gospel is. And the reason why he's showering the world with his tender love is so we don't live as if we are fatherless. Because he knows we're going to encounter tragedy. And when he thinks of us encountering tragedy, he's intimately acquainted with how that tries to move on our hearts. He's intimately acquainted with how that tries to war against our emotions, how it tries to war against our sight, how it tries to war against our whole spirit, soul, and body. And because of that, he has come and showered us with his tender love so that we could be kept, we could be shaped, we could be stirred up by way of remembrance when we encounter tragedy of the tender love that's in this guy's heart for us and that we don't live as if we are fatherless. And that, that's one of the meanings of the word mercy. One of the meanings of the word mercy is tender love. Love me tender, love me true. I mean, why do you have to even add the word tender before the word love? Right? I mean, you would think the word love is carrying with it an extra power. But that's not what the word that's used in the, the ancient Hebrew thought. No, love is not enough to describe this mercy we're trying to wrap our brains around. And sometimes I think the, the human language is poverty-stricken and even revealing what tender love looks like. And that's one of the reasons why I think the Scriptures say that the Word was made flesh. Because I think we see the tender love of God Himself being displayed on the cross in the body of Jesus Christ, his, Him giving His body to be broken. That's the Word made flesh. That's tender love. 
And so our, our English language, I don't think it can, it can accurately describe it. But one of the meanings of mercy is tender love. And so tender love is not just any kind of a love. It's not just talking about any kind of a love. It's a specific kind of love. It's the kind of love that can only come forth out of someone if they're intimately acquainted with the suffering of another. That's why it's tender. There's a tenderness to it. There's something you feel. It's something that comes out of you when you see someone else suffering. And because you're intimately acquainted with what that suffering is like, it's a, it brings forth in you the kind of love, right, that is uh, empathetic with what's going on there. It brings forth out of you the kind of love that's tender-hearted towards the suffering of another. That's what it is. That's what it looks like. It's a love that's filled with tenderness because you've experienced the same suffering. You've felt the same suffering in the earth. And because you've suffered the same thing, the love that pours out of you pierces the heart and it gives comfort to the afflicted. And that's, that's the motivation behind tender love, to alleviate suffering, to comfort the afflicted. And so if you're ever wondering, what does God desire for my life? What does God want with me? What does God want for me? So many times we think from the perspective of what he wants from me. <laughs> but the scripture says God desi God's desire is mercy. It says God takes pleasure in mercy. And so what do you want to, if you want to know what God's desire for your life is, his desire is that you be comforted from your affliction. His desire is that the suffering you're experiencing in this earth, for it to be alleviated. He desires to alleviate it himself. He desires to comfort you from your affliction with himself. He wants to give you comfort by giving you himself. And there's no end he won't not go to in order to shower upon you his tender love. He's relentless. When we would do hikes in Colorado, you had some hikes that were longer and they, the ascent wasn't as defined. And then there were other hikes that went like three or 4,000 feet in only a mile and a half. And what that means is the ascent is nearly straight up. And listen, I was a world-class athlete then, and I was a maniac. And I would even say this is relentless. I mean, the kind of shape that I was in when I did that, I had a resting heart rate of like 32. I'd run 150 miles a week, and we would go on some of these hikes. And even me, even though I'd done the hike over and over and over again, there's a place where you're like, am I not at the top yet? It's relentless. That's what we would say. It's relentless. And what we knew was is the slower it takes us to get to the top, the more pain we're going to feel. So let us suffer great now so the suffering stops. I remember telling my little brother that because he, he'd come up to Colorado from sea level. I was dumb. I didn't realize this dude's got to acclimate. Or maybe I'm just like, I don't care because I want to suffer. And so he kept slowing down on this relentless climb. And I'm like, bro, the more you slow down, the more pain is coming, right? Relentless. God's desire to shower you with his tender love is relentless. It's relentless. There is no obstacle, there is no stumbling block that can get in the way. And should something try to present itself that looks like an obstacle or stumbling block, he's getting through that thing. Nothing's stopping him. Glory to God. All right, we're going to pick up our scripture references from Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew. I love the Gospel of Matthew. 
I love the things Jesus said. My prayer for the church is we just start thinking about the things we believe, right? And the things we read in the scriptures. Because what I found over the course of my life is there's a whole lot of things that I believe that don't make sense. <laughs> and I never stopped and thought, this doesn't make sense. Like, it's not logical. There's a lot of things we, we conclude about what the scriptures teach that actually don't fit, that don't line up. They, they don't go together. It's illogical. So we're going to look at Matthew. We'll pick it up in chapter 9. And we'll look at verse 11. And, and if you like understanding the scriptures, I, you can write down the, the scripture references and go back and listen to the message again and follow by reading the verses and see what the Holy Spirit ministers to you. But we'll look at Matthew chapter 9, verse 11. And when the Pharisees saw it, when they saw Jesus' disciples picking corn on the Sabbath, when the Pharisees saw that, they said unto his disciples, Oh, I'm sorry, I'm in the wrong, uh, that's Matthew 12. When the Pharisees saw Jesus sitting with the sinners and sitting with the publicans. With, publicans, guys, if you don't know, that's the worst kind of a sinner in a Jewish mind. Because a publican was a guy that became a tax collector for Rome. And so there was no greater sinner than someone collecting money from Jewish people for Romans. <laughs> that was like... You are an infidel. You are the worst kind of a sinner there could ever exist. Matthew was a tax collector, right, when Jesus revealed himself to Matthew. So the Pharisees saw Jesus eating with sinners, drunkards, gluttons, adulterers, prostitutes, and they saw him eating with publicans, tax collectors. And when they saw Jesus doing that, Matthew 9, verse 11, says that the Pharisees said unto his disciples, why does your master eat with publicans and sinners? But when Jesus heard what they said, you ever had someone try to say something to people behind your back and they don't think you can hear it? But then you hear it and you're like, what? <laughs> and you deal with it. What'd you say? <laughs> What'd you say, Willis? <laughs> when Jesus heard that, he said unto them, those that are whole do not need a physician, but those that are sick. And then he says to them, but go and learn what it means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. For I am come, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. There's a whole lot of things you could say about that kind of a thing. But if, if you're thinking about just the word repentance, so that people don't get confused about this, because our English language carries a lot of heavy implication with that term that isn't actually um, accurate when describing that word in the Greek. What Jesus is saying there is that God sees that his mercy manifested in the midst of people will cause them to turn away from trusting in their own works and it will actually cause them to trust in the work of God. Because there's a beautiful thing that happens when you actually become persuaded that someone's heart is filled with tender love towards you. When you actually become persuaded that someone doesn't despise you in your weakness, that someone doesn't despise you when you're beset with sin, when someone doesn't despise you when you're in darkness and death, and you see that their heart is filled with tender love towards you, you find something in your heart where you're able to trust them with your life. And so Jesus is talking about that. Listen, I, uh, go and learn what it means that God desires mercy and not sacrifice, right? I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners, of which the Pharisees were like the biggest sinners in the whole place, right? And that, they were the most blind to the fact that God's desire, God's desire is mercy. 
When you think of everything, everything about what God done since the moment that death entered the earth, everything he's done has been born from him being filled with mercy and wanting mercy to manifest. And so the Pharisees, that's the thing they couldn't see at all, the mercy of God. That's why they thought, why is this guy sitting with sinners? They couldn't understand that when God saw a sinner, when God saw someone beset with sin, that God saw someone that was beset with weakness, the weakness of their dying bodies, they couldn't fathom that God would be filled with tender love towards them. They couldn't fathom that God's heart for them would be to come and dwell with them and to comfort their life. They couldn't fathom that. And so Jesus says, go and learn what it means that God says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Matthew 12. In Matthew 12, that's the, the first example I tried to tear into. Matthew 12 is where the disciples are picking corn in the field. It says, and the disciples being a hungered. <laughs> a hungered means them dudes was hungry. And I know we think of I'm hungry like I ain't eating for like, or eating. <laughs> yes, there is some redneck in me. I know I moved off to Colorado and Boulder and I started talking more properly, but there is like a street kid in me, a country kid in me, a bayou boy, whatever you want to call it. Uh, when, when we think of being hungry, we think of, oh, I didn't eat since breakfast, right? Well, these guys, when they think of being hungry and not eating, it could be like a week. You, you see what I'm saying? Like it could be like a long time. So the disciples, being a hungered, are out in the fields, the cornfields, on the Sabbath, and they're picking corn because they're hungry. Now, when the Pharisees saw that, they, they got a problem with that. And they come and say to Jesus, and they say to Jesus that his disciples are doing things on the Sabbath that is not lawful to do. And when they say that, why do your disciples do things that are not lawful on the Sabbath to do, i.e. picking corn, because they're hungry, what they're saying there is your disciples are transgressing God. And so they were accusing Jesus and his disciples of transgressing God, right? Well, we know Jesus reads the law completely differently than the Pharisees do. That's why we call him rabbi. That's why he said you have one that you call master. There's actually only one rabbi. There's actually only one person qualified to interpret the scriptures. Every other interpretation is a private interpretation. Jesus is that rabbi. And so Jesus begins reasoning with these guys from the law. Because that's where these guys got the idea that picking corn in the field is transgressing God. And you and your disciples are transgressors of the law and you're transgressors of God. Well, Jesus comes and says, well, what do you make of the fact that David ate showbread? That David and his men ate showbread in the temple that was only supposed to be eaten by the priests. What do you make of the fact that David and his men did that? They ate meat that the law seemingly says was unlawful for them to eat. And what Jesus is, is implying there is, listen, those guys didn't, weren't struck dead. They didn't die when they did that. What that means is God did not see what David and his men were doing as transgressing him. They were blameless in the eyes of God. And so he asked the Pharisees another question. Haven't you read in the law how the priests in the temple on the Sabbath profane the Sabbath and they're blameless? Because the, the priests on the Sabbath are in the temple working. And what Jesus is bringing out, which I love to do, he's bringing out the contradiction in their thinking that they're so full of hypocrisy that they can't even see it. 
And so he's using the law to bring out their contradictions. You guys sit with a whole lot of contradictions. Maybe that should suggest to you that what you're believing about what's written in the law ain't true. Right? So haven't you read in the law how the priests in the temple on the Sabbath, they're in there working? Isn't that, according to you, profaning the Sabbath? But God holds those people as blameless, he says. And then Jesus goes on to say in Matthew 12, 7, right after that, if you had known what this means, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. So you see what the Pharisees thought God was after with the law was their performance. But Jesus comes and says, if you would have known that what God is after with the law is his mercy being manifested, you would not have condemned those God calls guiltless. You would not have held the disciples and myself as guilty because we, you would see we're blameless in the eyes of God because God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Oh, man. And so if you look at the, the Pharisees, I mean, why does Jesus say God desires mercy and not sacrifice? Well, the Pharisees looked at the law of the Sabbath as if it were about making a sacrifice for God. And even today, the carnal view of the Sabbath, you've got whole sections of Christianity that have a whole religion about what they're going to sacrifice for God on the Sabbath, right? You're not going to do anything on the Sabbath. It's a day you're going to set aside to the Lord. You're not going to watch TV. You're not going to read. You're not going to go to the gym. You're not going to do any of that. You're not going to go hang out with your friends. You're not going to go to the movies. The way the Pharisees read the law of the Sabbath was all about what you're going to sacrifice for God. They thought the Sabbath was about how they are going to love God by what they give up for God, a sacrifice. I'm going to sacrifice this for you, Lord. Oh, man. You hear how perverted that sounds when you say that? I mean, when you say that, how perverted it sounds, what you're going to give up for God. And because that was their mindset, they condemned the disciples for picking corn on the Sabbath when they were hungry. Jesus responds and he says, if you knew what it meant that God says, I want mercy, not your sacrifice, you would not have condemned me or my disciples. I want to help us read between the lines a little bit, guys. Jesus is saying what God was after with the law of the Sabbath was mercy. His mercy being revealed in your midst, not you giving something up for him. He wasn't after you making a sacrifice. He was after his mercy being revealed in your midst. You guys following that? Jesus says in Matthew 23, 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Hip religion, listen, the religion of the world, not pure and undefiled religion, the world's religion, listen, the world's religion also comes claiming the name of God. Full of hypocrisy is what it's full of. In fact, it can't help but be full of hypocrisy because it's built on the idea of a perishable life instead of being built upon the incorruptible life of God that he serves with pe people with. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of the law. The weightier matters of the law being judgment, mercy, and faith. Judgment meaning justice, mercy, 
and faith. These ought you to have done, justice, mercy, and faith, and not leave the other undone. So they majored on giving the tithe, right? And the other sacrifices and offerings, that's what they majored on. And Jesus said, in majoring on that, you've omitted the weightier matters, which are justice, mercy, and faith. That's an interesting thing that he's saying there. Now listen, Jesus isn't trying to say that the tithe, the law spoke of, doesn't matter. He's not coming and saying that doesn't matter. I want to bring into sight what Jesus is doing there. And it's consistent with what he does in all of Matthew. You have to remember that Jesus said, I didn't come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. I didn't come to tear down what the law said, but I came as rabbi. I came as the one with authority. I came with Shemekah. I'm the only one that can see what the law is actually saying. And I came to bring to realization. I came to pop your eyes open to what the law of the tithe or the tithe that's in the law is actually speaking of. And so Jesus is fulfilling the law of the tithe when he says that. He's acting as rabbi, as one with authority to interpret the law. And from that foundation, do you know what he says to them? The tithe, the law, the tithe, the law spoke of. He's not trying to tell them this tithe is insignificant. But what he's saying to them is you guys think it's about what you're going to offer God. But I'm here to tell you that what the tithe is actually speaking of is about God serving you with justice and mercy and faith. Uh oh. You guys are busy thinking the tithe is about you offering something to God. Well, the tithe is actually talking about God giving something up of Himself to you. <laughs> Listen, man, the tithe, we're going to get into this. That's why it's called the body of Christ. The tithe was always prophesying of the tender love in God's heart towards mankind. That's what the tithe was always talking about about God's tender love towards mankind and how God visits those who've been bruised by the tribulation in the world with his justice. That's what the law was always talking about. These guys were busy thinking the tithe is about what they're going to give to God. They still are. Well, it's kind of morphed a little bit, you know. A lot of them are thinking it's about what you're going to give to the preacher. I'm sorry. <laughs> the preacher, the preacher in the modern day church, God bless us, man. Many of them have inserted themselves in, as the mediator, as God in the scenario. And now the people must give unto them. And that the tithe is about them giving money to the preacher. If the preacher saw what the tithe was actually about, they would see their whole ministry should be one of pure and undefiled religion. Their whole ministry shouldn't be preaching the tithe as the perspective of people giving them money, but them preaching about how God gave up his own body to be broken to serve people with justice and mercy and faith. Mm. The sacrifices and offerings in the law are about God's desire, the thing that makes God happy, the thing that makes God like, yes, The sacrifices and offerings of the law are all wrapped up in God wanting to comfort people from their affliction. They were not wrapped up in him wanting them to do something for him. They were wrapped up in him desiring to comfort people from their affliction. You might be thinking, how can that be? This guy, Greg, he just says whatever he wants. It can't be true because we've been busy with the God that hates people. (laughs) Well, let's read in the scriptures. What does scripture say? 
Psalm 40. In Psalm 40. And again, in Hebrews chapter 10, it gives us a snapshot of Jesus talking with the Father about what he saw in the law. About Jesus talking with the Father about all the sacrifices and offerings he saw in the law. And this is what Jesus says. My eyes have been opened to what is written in the law. Remember, it says Jesus grew in wisdom and stature. My eyes have been opened to what is written in the law. Sacrifices and offerings you never desired, Jesus says. What he's saying is, is that was never the point. I see that the sacrifices and offerings in the law, the point was never about people giving you sacrifices and offerings. That was never the point. But those sacrifices and offerings that were in the law were actually prophesying of you, of preparing a body for yourself to give yourself up to be broken. Sacrifices and offerings you never desire, but a body you have prepared for me. When God brings something to in existence, you notice how he speaks it? Isn't that what's in Genesis? And so when God wanted to prepare a body that he could inhabit, that he could offer his own body to be broken, to comfort the world from the death that was breaking them, when God wanted that body to come into existence, he began prophesying of it through the law. He is the great prophet. And he begins prophesying of him offering his own body through the sacrifices and offerings in the law. Well, man read the law and thought the sacrifices and offerings was about what God demanded from them. And if we can now give God the proper sacrifices and offerings, this guy will stop smiting us, and that's how we're going to be healed from our affliction. We thought God was the one afflicting us, and if we can give him the right amount of money, if we can give him the perfect 10% of everything, not gross or not net, but gross, if we can give him the right 10%, this guy will stop afflicting me, and then I can be comforted from my suffering. But Jesus said, I see the sacrifices and offering in the law was about you, Lord, preparing a body for you to offer yourself for the life of the world. Hmm. <laughs> oh. Lo, I come in the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. That's, that's Jesus describing what the sacrifices and offerings were about. And what God desired when he prophesied of the sacrifices and offerings. Sacrifice, Jesus is talking with the Father. Sacrifices and offerings wasn't what you were after. You didn't want the sacrifices and offerings from people. You were never thinking of what the people could give to you. My goodness, Paul comes and says that God doesn't need anything from us. God who needs nothing. A God who can't be worshipped by the works of your own hands. Paul comes and says, Jesus saw, you were never thinking about what people could give to you. The sacrifices and offerings were always about you providing yourself as the lamb. They were always about you preparing a body for me that I could give my body to be broken for the world. It's mercy that has always been on your mind. Not lust. I hate to break it to you. If you think that the sacrifices and offerings were about what you're going to give to God, you're preaching a God that you say is filled with lust. A God that's busy thinking about what he can get instead of a God that's busy thinking about, I have everything. Let me empty myself for a people that have nothing. Pure and undefiled religion is to visit the fatherless and the widows. People that have nothing. What you going to ask for from a fatherless person? What are you going to ask for from a widow, someone who's barren? You ain't going to get nothing from them. 
That's not what God was after. Pure and undefiled religion is how you visit them and you empty yourself for them. That's prophesying of God's ministry. It's mercy that was always on your mind, Jesus says to the Father. That's what this is about. It's about your mercy being manifested. It's about a new creation being born from your tender love. It's about you holding together your death-torn people and your death-torn creation by you offering up your own body to be broken. Mm. Sacrifice and offering was never about doing something for God. It was always about God desiring to visit the brokenhearted with his tender love. Who's the brokenhearted? Well, Luke would come and say, all those that are being bruised by death. All those that are blind to the loving kindness of God because they're being bruised by death. All those whose understanding's been darkened by the plagues and the calamity and the death that's in this world. God wants to visit those people with his tender love so they can be comforted by the comfort that can only come from his hand. Hallelujah. I remember, man, when I was a kid, I, I had a bad drug problem. I, had a, I, I was jacked up, and I would always push it into the red zone. Like, I wasn't like, forgive my language, guys. I wasn't half-assing it. I never half-ass anything. I was all in. And so I would go into the red zone probably nightly. And by the red zone, I mean, I could die tonight, right? And so many times when I was in the red zone, because, listen, I called upon the name of the Lord when I was a little boy. And so I was filled with the Holy Spirit. And so I remember in those moments where I thought I was going to die, where your heart is racing and you think it's just going to blow up. I remember thinking that if I could promise God something, if I could give something up for God, then he would have mercy on me. Lord, I'll never do it again. Just don't let me die. I was busy vowing a vow to God. I was making a vow on my own sacrifice. And I was trying to bring my vow to the altar. Not knowing the, the tender love that was already in his heart for me. Not knowing that he didn't want anything for me as he sought me there beset by my weakness and my sin. He wasn't looking for me to vow a vow to him. He was trying to tell me about his vow to me. Wait, man, when God sees you beset by weakness, he isn't thinking of you making an offering. He's not thinking of you making a vow to him. He's not thinking of what you can sacrifice for him. What he's feeling is a deep compassion, a deep knowing of the pain and the hurt and the confusion that comes to us from the death that's in the world. What he's feeling is a desire to give himself for you. What he's feeling is a desire to give his body to be broken so his grace can be poured out upon you and you can be comforted in your time of need. If I had known the God that gave his own body to be broken for me in that place where I didn't want to die, I would have already seen this God is dwelling in me, holding together my death-torn life right now. He loves me. Instead of trying to make a vow to him. Oh, man. I'm not saying you can't be set free from bondages. That's not you offering a sacrifice to God. Neither is it you following through on a vow or a promise to God. I hate to break it to you. Your vows and your promises are worthless. There's no strength in your vows and your promises. There is strength in God's vow and God's promises. Right? I'm so sorry. So Jesus talked about the tithe. Guys, we realize the tithe is an offering, right? Jesus said sacrifice is an offering you didn't desire. 
people giving you a tenth isn't what you were after with the law of the tithe. My eyes have been opened. That's what Jesus would have said. The point of the tithe was never about an offering you could make. The point of the tithe was God's desire to give you himself. It's like in the Catholic faith. When you come up to the priest or the person that could give the Eucharist, you know what they tell you? The body of Christ. The point of the tithe was God standing there and telling you, I give you my body. Broken for you. That's the point of the tithe. The point is God's desire to provide himself a lamb so that he can heal your life. That's what he's after. Jesus read the law and saw it's about God preparing a body for him so God can offer his body to be broken for the suffering of the world. Jesus saw the tithe as God giving his body to be broken so there could be meat that could feed the world with an incorruptible life. That's what Jesus saw about the tithe. The world needs something that they can feed on that will comfort them from their affliction. The world needs something that they can feed on that will feed them with everlasting life. A tithe isn't what God was after. What God was after was giving his own body to be broken that there might be meat in the house for the people to eat. The body of Christ. That's why Jesus says he's the true bread from heaven. That's why Jesus says he's the bread of life. Jesus even stood up. You can go and read it in the scriptures. When Jesus stands up and says, my flesh is meat indeed, do you know where he says that at? In the temple. He stood up in the temple, the house of God, and do you know what he says? Thy flesh is meat indeed. Well, isn't Malachi say, bring ye the tithe into the storehouse that there might be meat in the house for people to eat? that there might be meat in my house. Well, Jesus stands up in God's house and he says, my flesh is meat indeed. And everyone who feeds on my broken body will find my broken body serving them with life everlasting. I am the true manna from heaven. I am the true bread of life. My flesh is the meat indeed. That's what Jesus saw about the tithe. Oh my goodness. God is gonna give his own body to be broken. God has prepared a body for us. He's prepared a body for me. It's not that God wants people to offer him something. It's that God is going to offer up his own body to be broken, that there could be meat that could feed the people with a life that will comfort them in their affliction, with a life that will alleviate the suffering they encounter from the tragedies in this world. Hmm. Jesus is teaching when he says, my flesh is meat indeed. Go read in the scriptures. He's in the synagogue. And you, I won't force this on you, but you can even go find rabbinical writings that says he was in the place where they gathered the money when he said that. Which wouldn't surprise me because it fits with all the scriptures. So Jesus is saying his broken body or his body being given up to be broken is meat indeed. His broken body is the meat that can feed you with an indestructible life. His broken body is the true manna from heaven. That's what he's teaching. You know what's interesting? If you look at the manna in the Old Testament, do you know the manna in the Old Testament was a tithe? Do you know it was a tithe that they gathered every day to eat? It was a tenth. It was an omer of an epath that they would gather every day, which is a tenth, which is the tithe. 
And do you know what they would do with that tithe, with that manna before they ate it? Numbers 11 says what they did with the manna before they ate it is they beat it and bruised it and crushed it. They chastised it before they ate it. Jesus comes and says, I'm the true manna from heaven. I am a God in the flesh. I'm going to give up my body to be broken, to be beaten, to be crushed, because my heart is filled with tender love for you. And I want my incorruptible life to come oozing out of my broken body to comfort the afflicted. Jesus is the true manna that was beaten and bruised. Some sections of Judaism, they even pierced the manna. Jesus is pierced in the side. What does Isaiah come and say? The chastisement. You know what that word in Numbers 11 means? They chastised the manna. Isaiah comes and says the chastisement that serves us with peace was upon Jesus at the cross. Mm. He gave his body to be broken. So in his body being broken, he could crush the head of the serpent that was bringing us death. God desires mercy, not your sacrifice. <laughs> uh, that's what communion was all about. I was an altar boy in the Catholic religion from like, I think, seven to like nine years old. And then my parents got a revelation that there is such a thing as the Holy Spirit. And I don't just mean that like you can read in the scriptures, oh, there's a Holy Spirit there. They got a revelation that like the Holy Spirit dwells in you, right? And when they got a revelation that the Holy Spirit dwells in you, they began seeing, now there's some things here that aren't so right, <laughs> right? And so we, we moved on. But as an altar boy in the Catholic religion, man, I, I could look back now, if I was in a Catholic Mass, I would go take communion. And I promise you, my heart would be filled with the words that they said that they didn't understand. But when you would get in line to go take the communion every Mass, and they had the priest or the person authorized to give you the Eucharist, and you got up to the priest, do you know what the priest would say? The body of Christ. The body of Christ they were feeding you. Well, communion was about the body and blood of Jesus. And the, the whole communion there, when they said the body of Christ and they were giving it to you, what they were meaning when they said that is Christ has given up his body to be broken for you. That's the whole meaning. That's the whole saying. Christ has given up his body to be broken for you. And when you took it, you took it in remembrance. Paul would come and say, every time you take communion, you take, the you take the bread and you take the wine, you're taking the body and blood of Jesus. He said, you are declaring forth the death of Jesus. Which is what? That his body was broken for me. There's healing for you from all your diseases and you feeding on God himself gave his body up to be broken for you. Oh, man. He's given himself up to be broken so you can be comforted with the comfort that can only come from God's hands. And that is what heals us from all our diseases. You heal all our diseases. Man, we only look at that word as like a physical uh, ailment coming upon your body. And that is encompassed in it. But I promise you, a great disease is trying to come to parents right now because of what happened at that school. It's the disease of fear. It's the disease of anxiety. A great disease is trying to come alive inside of them. A burden, a care, a stress is trying to be born in them. God gave his body up to be broken that your children's life could be kept from the death in this world. 
He heals you from all your diseases. He gave his body to be broken for you, that he might hold your death-torn life together by the word of his indestructible life. That's why he did it. Man, when I was a kid, I, a kid, a young man, I moved through so many different worldly phases of like where the party was. And one of the things I used to do was go to underground warehouses um, with DJs. Right? And then I would just go there to dance all night like a maniac. Well, one of the things that permeated those events were glow sticks. Right? Because people want to have glow sticks because you get the glow sticks in your hand and you start dancing. And boy, you could really whip something up. I'll have to show y'all one day. But an interesting thing about the glow stick, in order to get the light to shine, you have to crack it. You have to break it even. And if you don't first break it, there's no glowing. There's no light that's coming forth. It's got to be cracked for it to start to glow. When I lived in Colorado, I also went snowboarding all the time. Listen, I never got used to the cold, right? I, I learned to love the snow and like snowboarding because there's something magical about getting up to the top of Vail in the back bowls and sitting there while it's blizzarding and then surfing down through, you know, 10 inches or two feet deep of powder. There's something like supernatural, godly as you're doing that. But something else, I never got used to the cold. And they have these things that you can put in your gloves and in your boots that you crack. And when you crack them, they generate heat. When they're broken, they heat up your hands and your gloves and your boots, right? And it's, it's kind of like the saying that we have, you can't get blood out of a turnip, right? You crack, the, you crack the stick and what's in the stick is a glow, a light that will come forth because that's what's there. When you crack the little heating mechanism, there's heat inside of it. There's a warming. When you crack it, the warming comes out. Well, we say you can't get blood out of a turnip. And the idea there is whatever you squeeze something, whatever is inside of what you squeeze is coming oozing out. And there's nothing that's keeping it from oozing out. Well, listen, man, what's on the inside of God, what God consists of is an indestructible life. And he put on a body that was in the likeness of sinful flesh so that he could offer his own body to be broken. So that his body, when it was broken, when it was cracked like that glow stick, that what would come oozing out of him is the grace of an indestructible life. And that grace that is in his indestructible life could ooze out all over the afflicted ones and they could be comforted. God has brought heaven to the earth. The darkness that is trying to war against your kids, God has brought a plague to it. And the plague he brought to it is when he gave his own body to be broken because out of his broken body came oozing out what was inside of it. And what was inside of it is the word of an indestructible life. And there's a grace in the indestructible life. There's a comfort in the indestructible life that will give you comfort from the affliction that will alleviate the suffering you experience at the hands of the hell in this world. Blessed are those that see God's eyes are full of mercy. <laughs> Do you see what it's saying there? What it's trying to say there? Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are those who sees the mercy in God's eyes. Blessed are those that sees that God has given his body to be broken for you. Blessed are those because there's an oozing that's coming out of his broken body. 
There's an oozing that is going to just wash over you. There's an immersion in the grace and the comfort of our Lord that came out of him when his body was broken. Within God is a life that can't be overcome. With God, within God is a life that overcomes all things. Within God is a life that makes everything that has gotten crooked straight. Within God is a life that holds everything together. I know what you want is for your life to be held together. I know what you want is for your kid's life to be held together. I know what you want is for this world not to be able to tear apart your life or tear apart the life of your family. That's what God wants too. And so he gave his body up to be broken. He entered into the world and let the death in this world tear apart his flesh because inside of his flesh being torn is the meat that can feed us with an indestructible life and that can keep our lives and our family lives from being torn apart by the death in the world. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's what we need to see. Blessed are those who see God's eyes are merciful. When, when we're encompassed about by the confusion and the chaos and the hurt that comes from the darkness in this world, let us know enough about God with us that we don't judge ourselves when we feel that way. Neither do we see it as a sign something's wrong with us. It's not a sign we're not in faith. It's not a sign something's wrong with us. Neither is it a sign that something's wrong with God. What it's a sign of is we need to be stirred up by way of remembrance of the God that shed his blood for us so that he could cleanse us from the death that's in the world. So many times our Christian life consists of thinking we should never feel confused. We should never feel hurt. We should never feel uh, abandoned or, or forsaken. We should never feel chaos. But man, God's not calling you to that. What God's trying to do is visit you with his pure and undefiled religion. He's trying to visit you with his tender love. He's trying to set before you the fact that he shed his blood to cleanse you once for all time from the tribulation in this world. And that's the comfort that you need when you're in the midst of being compassed about by the tragedy here. Right? That's what we need. You ain't going to keep from feeling confused. You ain't going to keep from feeling tormented by the tragedy. But when we encounter that darkness, man, what we want to do is remember the God that gave his body to be broken for us. It's a warm embrace that happens when you see that. Hallelujah. Oh, man. Hosea 14.3. You know, Hosea is an interesting book which is one of the places where the quote comes from, God desires mercy and not sacrifice. But I don't, want, I don't want to get off on a big, long teaching about this, but, you know, Hosea is a prophet that God tells to go marry a prostitute, an adulterer, right? Well, it's an interesting thing because God came and joined himself to us, the world, when we were adulterers, <laughs> that he might partake with us, in our shame, in our darkness, in our confusion, in our destruction and death, and that we might partake with him in the life he has in himself is going to come oozing out when he partakes with us in the death that he took part of in the cross, right? But Hosea 14.3, Asher shall not save us. That's talking about like a God in the world. It's talking about a strong nation in the world. We will not ride upon horses. Horses in the Old Testament many times are speaking of the strength of man's hand. If you notice, it talks about horses and chariots a lot with Egypt and with Babylon. 
It's talking about the strength in the world or strength in a man's hand. So Hosea is speaking and he's saying the gods of this world can't save us. The strength in a man's hand can do nothing for us. Neither will we say any more to the works of our hands. You are our gods. You notice that? It's amazing. It's in the scriptures. What is, you, you see what he's saying there? Neither will we look to the world or the works of our own hands as if the comfort we need is found there. Neither will we look to our own fornication with the strength of our flesh as if we can produce the comfort we desire there. For, for in you, O God, the fatherless find mercy. <laughs> mm. The orphans. The fatherless there is, is typological, guys. It's allegorical. The fatherless are those that don't know God's with them. The tender love that's in his heart. That his desire is to give himself to be broken, to alleviate your suffering. Those are the fatherless. And because they're fatherless, they're looking to horses. They're looking to chariots. They're looking to the gods of this world. They're looking to the strength in their own hand for, for comfort, right, for compassion. And Hosea comes as a prophet speaking on behalf of Israel and said, Neither will we look there anymore because in you, God, is where the fatherless find compassion. In you, God, is where the fatherless find tender love it's you god that when we were adulterers when we abandoned you when we fornicated with the strength of our own flesh and committed adultery on you it's you oh god that even felt compassion towards us and came and joined yourself to us just like hosea joined himself to the prostitute can you imagine a prophet from god being told to marry a prostitute what God desires mercy and not sacrifice. Go and learn what it means that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. <laughs> oh, man. When we are feeling fatherless in this world, that's the feeling you feel when you encounter tragedy. When something comes to your house or your kid's house or your family's house or your loved one's house, your friend's house, that isn't born from life. That feeling you feel, it's the feeling of being fatherless. And when you're in that place, the tender love you need is found in seeing God's eyes are full of mercy towards you, that he joins himself to you in your affliction, that he gives his body to be broken. He offers himself to be smitten at the hands of our sin so we can be comforted with his life. That's what we need to see. God, in Colorado, and we'll finish with this. In Colorado, you're like, I mean, in Boulder, we were a little over a mile above sea level, right? I remember when I first got there, I got burned so easily, and I got dark skin. Like, I got some Indian in me from my dad, Native American. And so I tan. And I remember in Colorado, the first time I was out in the sun, I was out in the sun like I would be out in the sun here. And I got all burned up. And the Colorado guy was like, yeah, dude, you're a mile closer to the sun. That sounded like foolishness to me at first. I was like, what's the matter how close I am to the sun? But later on, I realized, well, yeah, the lightning strikes the ground like a lot easier and it's much more dangerous there. And so you're a mile up from sea level. And then there's many places where you could be like two miles up from sea level. Well, you know what you do so you don't get struck by lightning? They got something called lightning rods. And you put a lightning rod on your property in your house. And what it does is, is it protects your house from getting struck by the lightning. 
and it protects the people from getting struck by the lightning because it draws the lightning to itself. Well, that's the tender love in God's heart, that he become our lightning rod. And what he did was, and if I be lifted up, I draw all unto myself, Jesus said. What he was talking about is if I know we have so many different variations of what that means, but go and look at the word that's italicized. It's wrongly written in there. Jesus says, and if I be lifted up, I will be your lightning rod and I will draw all of the judgment, all of the condemnation, all of the serpent's poison, all of his bite into myself. I will be like the serpent that was lifted up in the garden. And everyone that can see me as their lightning rod, drawing into myself the death that is afflicting them, they will be healed from all their diseases, he says. That's what happened in Numbers when he nailed the serpent to the pole. What does it say? That everyone who saw it was healed from the bite of the serpent, who visits the brokenhearted and heals them from all their diseases. The God who gave his own body to be broken, that he could be a lightning rod for the bite of the serpent and gather it all into himself. Mm, mm, mm. If you're being afflicted by something right now in your body, in your personal life, by the current events, by what's going on in your life or your family's life, listen, God's desire is to comfort you. He's given his body to be broken, to heal you from all those diseases. That's his desire for you right now. And we'll just finish with this prayer. Father, we don't say this because you need to hear it. We say it for all of our benefit. Thank you that you have given us yourself. Thank you that you have given over your own body to be broken. Thank you that you make us whole. Thank you that you have made us whole, that you do make us whole, that you are making us whole. Thank you for giving us your body. Amen. Glory to God. Thank you guys so much for coming and being with me today. Um, may your life be shaped by God's compassion and his mercy. Hallelujah. You guys rock.